Hello, welcome to the Matthias J. Barker podcast. My name is Matthias. I'm a psychotherapist from Spokane, Washington, and this is a podcast about mental health and moving towards what's meaningful, even despite hardship. I am joined today by Dr. Frank Anderson. I am so excited that you're here. Thanks for joining me today. It's great to be here. I'm super excited about it too, actually. Well, I'm going to give you a little bit of an intro and tell me if I'm over-exaggerating <laughs> because I, yes, I hold you up on yes, this pedestal. I'll say yeah. yes, you are. How about that? <laughs> um, Dr. Anderson, he's uh, is a Harvard-trained psychiatrist. He was part of one of the first, um, the first EMDR study that was used to treat PTSD. He was on the research team there, studied under Bessel van der Kolk. Um, probably the leading trauma voice in the field right now, alongside of uh, Dick Schwartz. And so, I'm not exaggerating. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna cut it right there when I say that Frank Anderson is probably uh, one of the um, highest experts in the field on trauma on the planet right now. And I'm excited to talk to him because he certainly is gonna bring a lot to this conversation. Thanks for being here again. I'm really excited. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. I love this. I love this evolving connection that we have. You know, it's really important for me in some weird way. I'm being kind of driven to bring this message to the general public. I think it's with forces that are beyond me. And I'm taking that and you know, you're someone who's out there doing the good word um, in the general public. So I love what we can bring to each other and offer each other in this, you know, consistent message. Yeah. around healing so thank absolutely. you absolutely yeah I'm, I'm just so honored honored to get to have the connection with you and uh you know we were talking earlier i think this this last week uh just kind of over <laughs> chat on instagram over this uh this post that i put up um just a little bit of context for people listening i, I put up a video on empathy and just talking about how i didn't see empathy as a really sharp tool for healing and I don't know, we can kind of get into why I think that, but the funny part was that it was in direct contradiction of Brene Brown's work. And, and uh, there was a video that people were sending me that um, I unintentionally actually used her exact same analogy and made the opposite point. And so it almost, it seemed like I was calling her out and I certainly was not. And uh, I got ridiculed for contradicting the queen and lots of unfollows and angry messages, which was just funny. And so it just kind of spurred maybe some interesting conversation for people who wanted to engage with it on just what is the utility of empathy? And uh, I contrasted it with compassion. And uh, I know this is something that you've actually spent a lot of time in your work uh, Mm -hmm. exploring and thinking about as well. So maybe let's start here just so everyone kind of feels like they're on the same page. How would you define empathy? And uh, where do you think the contradiction was between my video, Brene Brown? Where do you think the misunderstanding or the conflict is when we're trying to talk about the utility of empathy? Well, so a couple things I'll say about it. And one of the things that I'm aware of is that different people use these terms not in the same way. So Mm -hmm. when one person talks about empathy, they might be really meaning sympathy. And when somebody's talking about compassion, they're really talking about empathy. So for me, it's important to get clarity around what we're actually talking about. What is the definition of empathy? Because different people have different definitions of it, right? Is there such a thing as compassion fatigue or empathic distress, for mm-hmm. example, all right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of my view in, of empathy and compassion comes from some of the work of uh, Tanya Singer. So she's a, she's a neuroscientist from the Max Planck Institute in Germany. 
Uh, Dick and I had the pleasure of meeting her at a summit in Iceland several years ago. So she was like this incredible person who does amazing work on empathy and compassion. And so I really got to know some of her work. And she's one of these pure neuroscience people. Mm. Ah, you you know what she said? One of the things I love, (laughs) you people with mirror neurons and resonating with mirror neurons, ah, baloney. You know, she's like all about the, she said mirror neurons are motor mimicking. They're not about resonating with feelings and the Mm. purest. And this is the neuroscience perspective, right? So what she looked at, and she's mapped out the neural networks of empathy and compassion. She's got all the brain scans. She's got all Mm. the bells and whistles. And from her perspective, she shows you the neural networks of compassion and the neural networks of empathy. And they're very different. They're in different Mm. parts of the brain. Okay. So So would you give us a, just a functional definition for how she distinguished between the two of those, just so we can kind of map that on. Totally. So from a compassion perspective, it uses the care seeking network, which is certain networks Mm. within the brain. And it's, I, I'm here for you. I care about you. I want to help you. And I'm Mm. here to be with you in your pain. So compassion is a being with okay it's i care about you i want to help you and i'm here for you it's about the other person okay and she talks about compassion in that way in my work as an ifs trainer compassion is what we call unblended like i'm not in anything Mm i'm 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 holding space for you Okay. And meaning like you're not wrapped up in your own emotions. You're not wrapped up in your own stuff that's happening. You're really fully present just with the other person instead of making it about you. That's that's exactly. And you could stay when you're truly in compassion, you can hold a lot for the other because you're not getting triggered and you're not getting activated. You're there for them. And it's, it's interesting that it's the care networks, which they can map out and the seeking network, which includes dopamine. Um, in this way, which a lot of addictions do, right? Empathy, on the other hand, is using the uh, portions of the insula, which integrates body awareness and body integration. Mm -hmm. Empathy is a resonating with somebody else's suffering, okay? This is a resonating. And in, in Tanya Singer's research, we burn out in empathy. We don't burn out in compassion. There's no such thing as compassion fatigue you could sustain being with somebody for long periods of time. And well, this empathy, is interesting. If, if yeah. I could ask a question, just so, because I think your description of compassion, I think is what a lot of people would bring to mind if someone were to ask them what empathy is. So you're really right when you say we kind of use these terms interchangeably. A lot of us think about these things, you know, pretty almost in the same bucket. Empathy, I think even in its most extreme examples is like this catch-all term for just feeling loving towards other people. And so that's why it's such a confusing topic when we're like, hey, empathy isn't super helpful. Compassion is because it's like, well, aren't they the same thing? And so what you're saying is that there's a there's an ability to be present and specifically be present with the intent to want to help. So there's there's a there's a it's a combination of altruism, a combination of one, a desire for (laughs) um, would it be a desire to get the other person out of pain or a desire to be helpful or is there I'm any specificity help. there? It's more, it's open. Like it's this, it's, I'm here to help. It's okay, not, so there's flexibility. Gonna, yeah. It's holding, yeah. it's like that holding, loving, holding the space in a loving way, whatever you need, I'm here for you. But whatever. empathy, so empathy has this ability to burn us out. And you're talking about this resonance 
it sounds like yeah. compassion is kind of resonant too. So how would you distinguish or make a distinction between the kind well, of resonance so, happening in empathy? Yeah, so in really compassion doesn't have resonance as much as it's, it's a desire. This is where the dopamine desire comes in. Okay. It's a desire to help. I'm here and I want to help you. Okay, great. Empathy, the resonating, and this is an interesting thing that I think I have kind of evolved from the IFS perspective. And Tanya mm -hmm. talks about, it's not, I'm feeling your feelings, Matthias. Mm. So empathy is not, I'm feeling your feelings. People say this all the time in therapy. You don't know what it's like. Mm -hmm. You're not, yeah. how do you know what it's like to be raped? Because you're not, you've never been raped. You're not in mm -hmm. my shoes. They're saying, you are not empathically resonating with me. Mm. But when we unpack this a little bit more, my belief is, Empathy is really, I'm feeling my pain while you're feeling your pain, mm -hmm. not I'm feeling your pain. Mm -hmm. So if you're talking about being bullied or having a really difficult experience with a loss, mm -hmm. what happens to me when I'm empathically resonating is I'm like, I, I, I'm feeling that time I felt loss. Yeah. So I'm feeling my pain while you're feeling yours it actually triggers my wounds yeah well it's a couldn't one blended say space yeah go ahead to play devil's advocate not really devil's go advocate, ahead. just to just to kind of explore this it would be yeah wouldn't, wouldn't we maybe start with empathy and then perhaps transition to compassion so if i you know maybe i was bullied as a kid so i have a passion for helping people who are bullied right but then that leads me to want to help. So is that compassion or is there yeah. still a difference? So here's the, here's the way I think about it. And this is only the way I'm thinking about yeah, it. You know, yeah. as I spent time with this is I believe that both are valuable. It's mm. not that empathy's wrong and it's not that compassion's good. Okay. Mm. But we burn out because it's not sustainable. However, I believe that empathy informs compassion. Mm. So we can use our experience. Yeah, I know what it's like to be bullied. Mm -hmm. I have felt that before. But if I get flooded and overwhelmed, I'm no use. I'm not useful <laughs> as a therapist. Yeah. If I'm too in my empathy, I'm overwhelmed by my own experience, right? Mm -hmm. So I like, this is why I believe both are valuable. Mm -hmm. You know, not one's good and one's bad. I'm going to use, sometimes I can well up, but I don't let it take me over. And, and it informs my ability to be with somebody's pain. Like, yeah, I've, I've felt that before. As a matter of fact, I'm even feeling a little a bit of it now. So I'm always modulating, if you will. Yeah, that's a great word. Right? The amount of empathy. So I'm crying, I cry with patients sometimes, you know, and I, I'll let how much, is, how much is therapeutic, how much is useful, mm. how much what ends up happening, if it becomes... Like, oh my God, Matthias, hold on. Then it becomes about me instead mm -hmm. of you, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm too in my experience, then often the other person feels like they have to caretake me. Yeah. So. And that's, that's a risk therapeutically. I think that that yes. even happens though in friendships or when you're talking to your parents, like you see that in yeah. parental kid relationships all the time. If yeah. it, you know, I, I'm sure you have too, but working with teenagers, that can be a huge boundary in building a strong bond with the parent is like, every time I'm trying to wrestle through a way that, I don't know, the world has presented itself in a complicated way to me. My parent yeah. jumps in, not necessarily with trying to, with a, with an effort to help me in my unique situation, but here's what I've learned. Here's what I've experienced. You need to take this on because 
I've lived longer. <laughs> I've, I've more experience. You yeah. just need to trust me. And, and in that situation, you can start to even just kind of intuitively pick up the difference between right. perhaps that being fueled from empathy versus fueled from compassion. You got right? it. How do you That's think of that? I totally agree with you. That's exactly right. When it, when it, when, when some, and this is when you can tell when somebody's too charged, yeah, it's more about them. Mm. When somebody's whole, it's like, wow, I've been there. Tell me more about your experience. See that compassion is about the other. When there's too much empathy, it becomes about me. Like, I know what it's like. You listen to me. And then the kid's like, okay, there's no room for me here. This is all about them again, right? So it, there is this way that it is, I really believe both are important and empathy is useful from my perspective in the right proportions, yeah. like in the right mm -hmm. amounts in informative ways, mm -hmm. okay? So um, I, would it be ahead. an accurate, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, go ahead. That's right. No, go um, ahead. I, uh, so would it be an accurate description to say that almost empathy and compassion are two different things happening at the same time? And they have maybe like a, um, like a symbiotic relationship where they can, they can enter, I don't know, they, they, they work with each other, but they are very distinct things. Is that kind of? Yes, that's the way I think about them. And that's what I like to teach people when I do trainings and things like this, is I say to therapists or whatever workshops I'm doing, I, I have people break it down. Like, All right, let's do five minutes of just compassion, yeah. artificial. Let's do five minutes of empathy. I want yeah. people to feel what it's like, but we do seamlessly move in and out of these. Mm. Some people are much more comfortable with compassion, natural. This is who I am. Yeah. Some people are more touchy-feely. It's all about the feelings, you know? And I say, hey guys, both are important. Let's see if you can get a little bit more clear around using both of these in a way that's important. So I like to teach people these differences and get them used to it. The other thing I'll say about it is it's important to be the recipient of both too. I mm. do this because like, what does empathy feel like? Some people love it. Oh my mm -hmm. God, they get me. Mm. And other people are like, too much buddy. Yeah, you know? yeah. And compassion is like for some parts of us, Compassion can feel really distancing. You're not there with me. And for other parts, compassion is like, oh my God, somebody's holding the space. This feels so safe. Mm -hmm. So the recipient of empathy and compassion is just as important for me as the deliverer of them. And I think it's, I think it's, they're all important in this way. And I like to bring awareness to these nuanced differences in, in each really side. Good. So how would you define sympathy? Because it, it seems with Brene, her video contrasted that empathy with sympathy. Where do you think that fits in all this? The way, and this is just my view, right? The way that I think about sympathy is it is specific to loss. Mm. Oh, interesting. It's, okay, tell me more. It's, you know, well, I think about, I, I'm so sorry for your loss, like sympathy cards. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, like I think sympathy, and, and I think Brene probably has a different definition of this. I, I'm my work, I, I'm not fully aligned, I think, in some ways with her around this. Mm -hmm. You know, I look at because I, I've worked with somebody who's on her team and works with her, and she's like, wait a minute, Brene, you know, and she got really mm -hmm. relaxed when I said, I believe empathy inform, informs compassion. She's like, okay, fine, that works. <laughs> okay, we can have, yeah. yeah. We can have this discussion common ground. <laughs> now. But for me, sympathy is a little bit more specific, you know, mm -hmm. and we could 
oh, I feel you can have compassion or empathy with sympathy. Oh my mm. God, I'm so sorry for your loss. Like I'm here for you, you know, but it, for me, and I could be wrong about that. Sympathy is I feel for your pain and I could feel it mm-hmm. I, for your loss. I feel for your loss. Mm-hmm. And it could be a compassionate version or it can be an empathic version. That's the way I see it, but I don't, you know. Yeah, just- no, that's cool. I mean, so it would be maybe like a third dynamic that interplays with the empathy yes. and the compassion that can be in right. a higher or smaller degree. You, uh, you, you've mentioned something called IFS a few times. I know there's some listeners who don't, doesn't know what that is, internal family systems. You were, um, the way I like to explain it to some people, you were one of the advisors on the movie Inside Out. Is that correct? Well, no. Oh, okay. Not, mis- not an advisor. So yeah, that's interesting. So this gets misquoted a lot, but I did do a project with them. So I worked, okay. so I, some people came to me and said, oh my God, Frank, look, look at this Inside Out trailer. So I put a trailer on one of our big annual IFS conferences. I'm like, look, everyone, IFS, uh, Pixar did a movie about IFS. Isn't that lovely of them, right? You know, <laughs> but I, it was, so I got uh, exposed to the movie and then one thing led to another. And I, I went to Pixar, I went to Pixar studios and I started talking to these people. I said, you guys have done something very important and very powerful Mm -hmm. from Mm -hmm. the mental health perspective, from the parts perspective. And we hit it off and we started doing a project which never took land, took off the ground. It never got off the ground, but it was this project of working with the inside out voices, all the joy, sadness, fear, anger, and disgust, and using star athletes, these really important role models for kids and letting, doing stories and interviews with athletes, Michael Phelps, Simone Biles, um, of untoward difficult moments in their life. And what would it have been like if they were able to be with their parts in that moment? Oh, cool, cool. Okay, so it was a very cool project and we just didn't get the funding for it. So I worked with them on a project related to Inside Out. I didn't consult on the movie per se. They were super excited because they wanted those characters to live on forever. And we were going to make these PSAs. We were going to make commercials and things Mm. like that. So I worked with their brilliant people, lovely people there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they said to me, like, Frank, we're here to tell stories and entertain people. Like if we can make a difference we're all in. So they were, they were very touched to hear about IFS and to hear the way it was a modality mm-hmm. and to align with us in this way around using these parts therapeutically. Yeah. You know, well, I what, think it's a, it's an easy analogy to grab onto that. There's right. almost these different parts of us that are conversational and trying to, I don't know, come to an agreement on how to behave. Yeah. And, and that reminds me a lot of IFS, not necessarily that we break it down to the anger part, the sadness part. I mean, that's, it can get more complex than that, but it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a cool analogy because I think even when we're thinking about compassion, empathy, sympathy, it's not just maybe that these are um, chemicals in the brain that, you know, rise or fall. It's almost like this conversational aspects of our personality yeah. on, okay, here we have someone that's going through loss. We have someone who's going through pain that pain may or may not you know, resonate with pain that I've been through. And so it's almost like there's this, this round table discussion in our own hearts yes. and minds of how do we engage with this person and what we've seen. And this is maybe part of what fueled a lot of my um, suspicion of empathy as kind of the cure all was when I was working with kids with maladaptive sexual behavior and mm-hmm. kids who had, um, you know, abused and molested other kids 
it wasn't in the data that empathy training actually helped. And that was something that really surprised me. I was actually yes. looking to confirm my suspicion that it would help. And, and I was like, yes. well, no, 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 like we should do empathy training. And I remember going to my kind of my team of trainers and like, no, no, we're not, that's actually not, you know, an evidence-based therapy for this population. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? Empathy training isn't an evidence-based, evidence-based treatment for this population. Yeah. Like, of course. And so I, I, I jumped on Google Scholar and couldn't find a thing because uh, <laughs> yeah, it just, it wasn't, it turns out that just simply isolating it down to the ability to resonate with somebody mm-hmm. can be used for good or evil. Yes. That there's a neutral element to that. Right. And it was actually people who or, um, you know, people who are high in empathy can use that ability to resonate and connect with people's pain, either to try to alleviate that pain in a compassionate way or to take advantage of people. And on 100%. a less maybe severe note, I think good salesmen are really highly empathetic in this way <laughs> because they know how to pull on the heartstrings. Uh, people who write ads, people who create propaganda are highly yeah. empathetic. Hitler was a highly empathetic person, That's right. even though he was a highly evil person. Because he used that resonance with, you know, the people of Germany at that time to create a sense of uh, unity around that lived experience. And so that's where I was like, okay, empathy actually isn't this catch-all idea of just all love and good, warm feelings. This is our psychological ability to connect our experience with other people's experience for better or for worse. I don't know what comes to your mind as I... I totally agree with you. That's exactly right. And, you know, in the olden days, because I am in, I am one of those in the olden days kind of people, Mm -hmm. um, George Valiant did these, did a big piece of work. He's a big researcher that um, was an analyst in Boston years ago, but did this work on sociopaths, Mm -hmm. you know, and this is this whole thing that sociopathy is, it wasn't, oh goodness, sociopaths don't, don't feel like, don't have the capacity to feel. He's like quite the mm-hmm. opposite. <laughs> Sociopaths mm. can really tune in to mm. what somebody else feels and then they can use it in untoward ways as yeah. opposed to, so it wasn't that sociopaths don't feel. Mm. It's like they're almost a two, you know, razor sharp mm. and use it in a, in a way that's not helpful. Right, you know yeah, I, mean? I, was, I, I was listening to a lecture where someone referred to a study right along those same lines where actually the, it wasn't empathy training that helped sociopaths either. It was, um, it wasn't even a predictable factor how empathetic or not empathetic sociopaths were. It was yeah. actually the violence and then the lack of self-control, the the, um, the impulsivity right. and the propensity towards violence that was more predictive, yeah. which I thought was fascinating. Again, kind of this empathy being not not a bad but just a neutral feature almost right. in these right. instances. Well, and, and you know another thing I'll say about that, like a lot of people who commit violent crimes are highly dissociative in the moment. So there is this ability for disconnection in the event, and yet they still have the capacity to feel for Mm -hmm. the other, but it's those, it's just these capacities, these moments of total dissociation or disconnection that allows someone to go through with something like Mm -hmm. that, but it doesn't mean they don't possess the capacity to feel, you know what I mean? Mm, yeah let me bring up i want to bring up two other things if it's okay yeah go ahead is that right that's right so i wanted to bring up this piece when we're talking about empathy and compassion because somebody had talked about this with me in one of the trainings which i thought was really interesting we also have the capacity to pick up other people's feelings okay which is not empathy or compassion 
Okay. okay. And I want to just bring that into the discussion. You know, if you walk into a room and there's people sitting there and somebody's sitting on the couch and they look really bummed out and depressed, you can say, oh, that guy, that guy is depressed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we can pick up other people's feelings without necessarily resonating. I don't have to feel sad in order to empathically sense somebody else's feeling, right? Mm. And that's different than I'm here to help you. I'm available for you. So I think, you know, a lot of mediums or spiritual people are Mm -hmm. very, this is what the general public calls an empath. Mm. I'm an empath, right? Which is not empathy, Mm -hmm. but it is this capacity to pick up somebody else's what's going on in somebody else without necessarily feeling it yourself. So I, I, I throw in that other piece too, because some people are just highly sensitive people mm. where they can pick up the emotions in others without necessarily being triggered mm-hmm. or without necessarily having a desire to help. It's like, oh, I feel that. I sense that in you. Mm. So I just wanted to throw that. Piece. Okay, that's really interesting because I haven't spent a lot of time hearing about that or, or thinking about that. So there's so then to, to expand the categories further, just so we don't get lost for people listening, it's like we have empathy, which is resonating with someone's experience because it touches on your past experience. There's compassion, the warm desire to want to help or alleviate another person's pain. There's sympathy, which is the, um, you said it's connected to loss. Remind me, yeah. remind me your definition. Of and I, for me, sympathy is connected to loss more specifically, and you could be compassionate or empathic in sympathy because it's specific to loss is this would sympathy be connected to what you're talking about or is that a separate feature i think it's a separate thing i really do i i know people who just sense other people's feelings you know and this Mm -hmm. is where mediums or all these Mm -hmm. people who like pick things up right they just have a very a sensitivity to other people's emotions you know that's what in the category of like temperament and personality or is it something deeper than that yeah you know i think it's probably more complicated than that i you know what there's a lot that goes into that definition of a highly sensitive person Mm -hmm. there's a lot of sensory motor integration issues there's a lot of you know people with autism for example on the autism spectrum it the research shows it's not that they are not empathic they're way too empathic Mm -hmm. They, they have way too much sympathy empathy and that's why they're looking away all the time and not doing eye contact because they're so overwhelmed by it all so that spectrum of highly sensitive person i think is more complicated but some people can really pick up you know Mm. others feelings without being affected or with being totally emotionally overwhelmed which is more empathy yeah that makes sense well i guess you know something that was coming to mind i wanted to get your thoughts on this because i think yeah you know, for people listening this far, I would imagine that's like, okay, we have a bunch of different buckets that we can put these warm feelings, yeah. these connection feelings into. Yeah. What's the utility of distinguishing all these things? Yes. Can't we just say, okay, warm, fuzzy, loving feelings, wanting to help people. It's all kind of just this, you know, different for each person. And, you know, I think the work of Paul Bloom really kind of, mm-hmm. I don't know, it was a very surprising book to read um, in part because I just, I'm a pretty empathetic person myself. I guess that's why I'm a counselor. <laughs> like I'm really moved Got by it. people's suffering. I want to help. Yeah. And, yeah. and, uh, I was also at the time when I found his book was wrestling with, I don't know, the, the way that 
the church that I grew up in tried to help people in third world countries. And then just seeing actually the negative ramifications of a lot of the mm-hmm. charity work that people put a lot of, you know, effort and money into. I mean, I remember going on these mission trips and going and helping build houses and it never really occurred to me to think like, well, why are they paying all these 13 year olds to come <laughs> why would, yeah. to come down and build these houses in Mexico? It seems like there's probably people in Mexico that know how to build a house. Um, it'd probably be a better use of money than, you know, to just pay some people locally to build this house than to, you know, to pay to ship all these 13 year olds down here to do it. And there's just a bunch of instances like that. I I remember reading the book helping hurts along this time as well. Mm -hmm. And there's a story of a a church that, that found, you know, connected with a village, another church in Africa, and they were sending eggs and um, pallets of eggs so that people wouldn't starve so that people wouldn't, you know, like die of hunger. And that was a very, you know, warm kind thing to do but um all the chicken farmers went out of business and because there's a you know free pallet of eggs that kept showing up to the local community and then over time the church decided to you know move their charitable donations to a different venture to make a connection with some you know another group that was in need and stopped sending eggs but that that community didn't have i don't know the infrastructure to keep you know, they didn't have chickens anymore because it would it was like 20 years of yeah. you know why why get chickens and raise eggs there's free eggs you know here all the time and so then that community was actually left at a pretty tremendous disadvantage because yeah. they didn't have those eggs for the next 20 years and so even though they had a surplus for a little while in the long run it actually harmed you know yeah. that community and that's yes. a, that's an example case they point to tons of stuff tom's shoes was kind of right in that same vein it was these mm. kind of western um, efforts to try to help, but that yes. were often in the long run economically led to a lot of suffering for people. And mm-hmm. it's a, it's kind of an interesting thing to look like, oh, okay, I want to help. I moved to help. I try to maybe without listening. And maybe that's what I concluded was yeah. I jumped in there just thinking, oh, here's a solution that makes sense to me. And then it created right. more harm, you know, in the same domain that I was trying to help. And so Paul Bloom kind of takes examples uh, similar to that, similar to like in the book, Helping Hurts and says, yeah, when we're moved empathetically, we just connect and try to alleviate the pain of the thing that resonates the closest to us, the thing that reaches out to us, the thing that pulls on our heartstrings, not necessarily in ways that are the most efficacious, not necessarily in ways that's actually evenly distributed. So for example, like I might be, you know, really moved by the plight of, um, I don't know, like uh, maybe foster kids in my, in my city mm-hmm. and in my town. Um, and I really want to help them. And I just think like, you know, pouring a bunch of money and creating all these group homes, that's really what I need to do. Cause, cause like, I don't want, cause I heard a story once of a kid who slept on the floor of their social worker's office. And so I'm going to invest all this money in group homes when you actually look at the way foster care systems work. That's not really what's needed. It's just a bunch of group homes. <clears throat> Like, you know, there's, there's a lot of other solutions that'd be way more helpful. I don't know, like creating scholarships for foster parents to get involved in programs, creating more awareness and, and making it easier for foster parents because group homes are actually, you know, well, that that's a whole pet subject in and of itself. But I just mean that when we're moved by empathy, sometimes we jump to solutions because they're really passionate and that doesn't necessarily connect to actual good done in the world. We don't pay attention to almost the boring details, the the minute, you know, effects of things over time, we do something that warms our heart. I don't know. That's, that's a space that I'm reflecting in. How would you? Yeah. I love what you're saying. And you're, for me, you're talking exactly about 
where empathy is about the person that's feeling it. Yes. Great way to describe. Okay. That's what you're talking about. Like, excuse me. And I'm going to call you out and me out here. I do this all the time. I'm like, I'm sorry. It's nice and altruistic to be a therapist and you want to help other people, but we are do, we are therapists to help other people to avoid feeling our own pain Mm -hmm. or because we're feeling so much pain. We want to, from an empathy help somebody else but in fact it's more about us mm. than it is about them okay so if you're helping through too much empathy you're going to tell the people in the village what's best for them mm. because it's really about you and your feelings and what you think they need so empathy is useful to a degree but it, when empathy guides decision making (laughs) it's about you and your pain not really about the other person which is where i think all these mismatches occur Mm. like you can use empathy wow this is painful for me and then bring it to compassion what do you need i'm here for you how can it be helpful see this is where that combination is important for me and i think a lot of people do help through too much empathy, which is really about them. And they will feel better. If I give you chickens, I'll feel better because I don't have to feel your pain anymore and mine might go away. So this is for me exactly what it is. This is why I think they're both important. And I think when we're driven by too much empathy, it's really about us. Yeah. More than it's about the other person. That's such a great way to describe it too. And that makes a lot of sense of maybe those um, I don't know, ways of trying to help that actually do end up in a, in a pretty yeah. poisonous, you know, they're driven, they're driven by yeah. something other than which yeah. is more internal. Well, okay. and I think the same results happen even on the individual basis, like you were talking about in therapy. It's, yeah. it's yeah. not just like worldwide poverty and foreign aid efforts. It's, it's down even to the individual. Yeah. Like, I think that, right. you know, you, to go back to the example of the teenager and the parent, yeah. um, it's really easy to want to help because you care about this little person so much, you know, like they're your whole world. And you can see that obviously their actions are going to lead to their own pain. And uh, and when you get caught in that, that's empathetic space that almost overruns things. It can create damage. I don't know. How have you seen that? That's exactly right. And I just, I think I was telling you before we started the call, I just did a parenting workshop in Poland on this very same thing. Like parents, I like did a workshop today on this. Parents can get really triggered and overwhelmed based on their own histories. Mm -hmm. And they superimpose that onto their children. Okay. Mm. And so the kid is not seen for who they are the kid is being driven by the parent wound, okay? And if parents get triggered or activated because kids often trigger and activate parents. Kids' behavior is immature and inappropriate by nature because they're kids. But if it triggers a parent, then a parent jumps in to try to stop that behavior so their pain doesn't get felt. And then they're, Mm. they're parenting through I don't want to feel this pain and I want you to stop doing what you're doing so I don't have to feel the pain. So there's a lot, even though there's, it's well-intended in a way, I'm always having people do your work, do your work, do your work. If you clear your pain, you can be there for your kids in exactly the way that they need you to be there that doesn't include your history in any kind of way. 
Okay. And it's a very common mistake, well-intended, you know, but when it's, you know, who is it for? And I'll tell what I love to say, and this was not my phrase, when it's intense, it's yours. When it's intense, it's yours. It's not the other person. So something's got triggered in you. And when it's about the other person, it's theirs. Mm, I feel that. I was feeling that today, reading some um, criticism that I got in the comment section for a video I made and feeling angry and then being like, okay, this is, this is me. There's something in me. Like uh, there's lots of criticism that I get that doesn't even really affect me because it doesn't trigger an insecurity that I actually have or, you know, it doesn't touch on an actual thing, but. But man, there's, there's sometimes where people just push a button and make a, it's a misunderstanding typically, but some sort of accusation that just, I think about it for like four hours and I can't stop. Like, I'm like, Oh, there's something in me. And I think that that happens not even just in comment sections or with kids, but in every relationship we have our boss, the kind of criticism you get from your boss, the kind of criticism you get from someone in power over you, someone who's making decisions for you that can also be deeply triggering. How would you um, advise a parent? who's maybe worried that they're doing that and doesn't know if they are or aren't. They're looking, it's like, I don't want a parent out of my trauma. I don't want a parent out of my, you know, I don't want it to just be about me. Well, how can I recognize yeah. if it's about me or not? So you're saying that intensity you got of emotion, it. what else? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the biggest piece. Like, you know, there is this way in our culture and society that we normalize losing it. Oh, it's normal. Parents lose it. Everybody loses it. Like, and there's this normalization. You go out with your friends and you talk about your kids all the time. It's like, oh my God, I yelled at my kid the other day. Yeah. Yeah. I know I do this too. I'm like, slow down people. Like, yes, we all lose it. Okay. Yes, we all lose it. And we need to really look at that. When we lose it, when we yell, when we have a really bad day, our kids lose their safe parent in those moments. Hmm. And more often than not, it's because something in us has been triggered or activated. So I feel it's our job and responsibility as parents to clear that stuff. And a lot of parents don't want to hear that. There's all these books about children, (laughs) parenting kids and the kids behavior. And I'm like, well, it's kind of more about the parents than it is about the kids. Because if we can clear our space, then we're compassionately available to allow these little beings to develop exactly the way they're supposed to. Mm. Not the way we think they should, not the agenda that we think they should have, or not them doing what we couldn't do because of our own histories. So there's so much loading that goes in when our stuff gets in the way. So Mm. for me, it's it's, a, you know, anytime a parent loses it, I'm, repair is a big thing. Cause yes, we do often lose, everybody loses it. And that's a, it's mm-hmm. a human ex- condition. Repair is really, really important. But I say, don't start the repair until you're able to feel compassion for your child again. Oh, wow. Because once you feel compassion again, your parts aren't running the show. Mm-hmm. So this is some of the guidance. So good. I, um, I give a similar piece of advice where almost just on a practical note, I'm like, take 30 minutes, take an hour to calm yeah. down. Yeah. You know, before right. re-engaging, because we saw in like the Gottman data, for example, that just that yes. diffu- diffused physiological arousal just takes yes. sometimes like 30 yeah. minutes to an hour just to metabolize through your system, those stress yeah. hormones to kind of calm back down. And, yeah. and, 
and really that's when you see things like the prefrontal cortex which is your part that's i don't know it's it's uh problem solving it's empathizing it's it's trying to connect again to reason and and describing your emotions you have so many more tools in your belt when you're calm and then so you're saying when you're outside of that kind of triggered empathy resonant kind of driven space and you recognize okay now i'm in a space where i feel less like maybe raw i feel less vulnerable in my own pain in my own spaces and i can see the pain of what the other person in front of me is genuinely going through and i feel that warmth that's when i re-engage that's my my prefrontal cortex is back online because you know in in those moments you there's a whole bunch of neurobiology around trauma and ptsd that shows prefrontal cortex goes offline you don't have that capacity to process and integrate and come up with a good decision so Mm -hmm. yeah that's my barometer for parents is just like when 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 love and compassion returns you are not in your stuff anymore Mm -hmm. And that's the time to engage, you know, because so, I've done, I have to say, honestly, I've done it before where I've lost it, maybe taken a break, mm-hmm. but come back a bit too quick because mm-hmm. when you come back, maybe I'm not losing it, but I've got an agenda. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really important for you not to fight with your brother. That's not compassion. I'm still, I'm not yelling and screaming, but I'm still agenda driven around what they should do versus wow, I'm really sorry I lost it. I really apologize. I shouldn't have done that. What was that like for you? What was going on for you? Can you tell me more? Like, you know, there's a, it's a very different, you can feel the energy difference in that when we, when we have that. And we want to get to that space before we do that repair. So when you notice yourself getting really activated and angry and and you notice like, hey, maybe this argument that I'm having, my yelling is more about me than them take a break, my, calm my down, agenda. Yeah. Yeah, relax, That's come back when that. you feel that you can be present in a warm space and then focus on repair. You got it. Yeah. Hey, I want to bring up another piece, which we haven't talked about yet, but it's very, it's another dimension of this whole conversation and it's the internal conversation. So mm-hmm. for those of the folks that don't know, IFS is very, we all have parts mm-hmm. and we all have what, we call self-energy, this inherent wisdom, this inherent healing capacity within. I believe mm-hmm. everybody has it, right? Empathy and compassion are just as important, guys, internally as they are relationally with other people, mm-hmm. okay? And what I mean by that is this. Our parts, those little people inside of us, just like the Inside Out movie, mm-hmm. will need both empathy and compassion from us around healing internally okay that there are times where a part of us that was bullied needs us our higher self to feel it in order to fully get it but if it feels it too much it can take us over and we're then we're in our experience again and we're reliving our trauma which is not helpful yeah so at times, feeling some of it is important, and I'm always watching that. Mm-hmm. And internally, if we're going to heal trauma, mm-hmm. we need to be a compassionate witness to what that part of us went through. So compassion is also very important internally. So this compassion-empathy combination, for me, is very important relationally, whether you're a therapist or whether you're in a relationship with somebody, child, Mm -hmm. 
friend, but I want to really bring forth the importance of it internally also. That sometimes our parts need us to feel it so that they believe we fully get it and can heal from it because it's feeling it is what's required to some degree. And they need to, they need that somebody holding the space in a compassionate, loving way internally. So I just want to bring the importance of this internal experience just as much as external. Yeah. Well, I'm going to try to embody some uh, protective parts that want to jump in and, and argue with that. So I could, I could imagine not? someone listening is like, okay, listen, I understand that I need to be compassionate. I need to be kind, but I'm not mad because I'm just activated in my parts. I'm mad because they're doing something wrong and I want them to be okay. I just care. Yeah. And, and like, let's say like you use the example of like, Hey, you know, they're choosing their own gender. Um, you know, like put your parts back, you know, focus on them. Someone's like, Hey, no, that actually violates our family's values. That violates how I raise them. Yada, yada, yada. This isn't about my beliefs. This is about what's best for them. What would you say? Well, what I would say is why don't you clear your parts internally mm-hmm. for what you believe is best for them? Cause you have a view and a perspective. And your view and perspective does come from your history, your upbringing, your, your religious beliefs, your family origin beliefs, and do the work around that and explore it internally. Learn all about where that comes from, right? Mm-hmm. And like, like there's a lot in that. There's a lot to learn about how much of this belief is mine, how much of this belief comes from the family, I come from, how much this belief comes from the church that I'm in, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. where do those beliefs come from? What is my true belief around this? Mm -hmm. Okay, because everybody's entitled to that. Yeah, yeah. And it may or may not be the same as this person's, even if they are your child, Mm -hmm. which is very challenging for people, is that, hey, our kid might have a different political view, <laughs> religious view, or view about orientation or gender mm-hmm. than I do. And how could I love a child who might have a different view as my own? Yeah. Well, okay. then the response might be, but it's my job to equip them. It's my job to pass on my view. Well, I don't know that that's any of our view. It's our job to educate. Mm. It is our job to educate. This is what I believe, honey. This is my view. But this is why there's so many problems is that we're we're imposing our view on anybody else, including our child. It often doesn't go so well. You know, this is that, that we are individuals and we all have our own journey here. You know, I have this very spiritual belief. This is my own view is that we get the children we need, not that we want. <laughs> My yeah, kids yeah. have made me grow in ways yeah. that are way beyond my, mm. my, I would have never in a million years mm. have thought I would have grown. I have one, you know, one of my sons is on the spectrum. The other one is, got, they both have ADD. I'm a super intellectual person and I wanted them to go to, I moved to a town that had the best school system in the state mm. because I wanted them to have the greatest education. 
neither one of my kids are in the damn school system. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, They're not yeah. those kind of kids. Yeah. You know, and so as much as I wanted that for them, mm-hmm. it's like that's not who they are. My oldest loves cars. He wants to be a car mechanic, and I am supporting car mechanic one thousand percent because that's who he is. Yeah. He ain't no Harvard trained psychiatrist, and he never will be, mm-hmm. nor should he be. Mm-hmm. Right. So for me, that is the learning for all of us. This is the going inside. What's important to me? Why do I feel it? I don't. You yeah. don't need to throw away your belief 100%. system. Right. Well, and I would say to a parent who's who's maybe in, and this is kind of a maybe a specific topic, but I think it has such relevance for anyone who has teenagers, because I think yes. all of us will confront it in one domain or another, whether it's something like sexuality or religious beliefs or something like, you know, who they're dating or who if they're going to go to college or not. It's, it's such a universal experience to be just at odds with somebody you care so much yeah. about that's disagreeing yes. with something so self-evidently, whatever. Yes. And the thing I always kind of try to like bring up when talking to a parent in that space is what does it mean about you if they decide to go this other way? Yes. And that exactly will right. usually start to reveal a piece yeah. of pain That's because exactly I think especially right. like, I don't know, like I, I have a lot of conversation in religious communities where there's verses that talk about, Hey, if you're going to be an elder of a church, you have to have your family in order. And so there's yeah. almost kind of this subconscious tone yes. that my children's decisions reflect on my character. Yes. And then, and so we're talking about almost like overt, (laughs) you know, it's about me. It's, it's not subconscious. It's, it's direct, you know, and, and that's actually pretty helpful. And I don't even really try to get in some sort of theological conversation about what should or shouldn't happen for whoever's involved. It's, it's a conversation of like, okay, what does their decision mean about you? Yeah. was tell me about your dreams for your child when you were younger and how this situation contrasts with them tell me about that grief yeah and when we can hold right. the grief with some yes. acceptance it's like That's the right. the anger starts to untangle just the knot yeah. loosens a little and then there's that acceptance that this is actually a different person than me yes and that i was you know to use maybe religious language I was given the opportunity to steward this person and I did, and sometimes I did the best that I could. And sometimes mm-hmm. I fell short of my own convictions yeah. and my own values. And I have to accept and, and repent of that in whatever way that I need to. But I have to, at the end of the day, respect that this person's going to make a decision on their own volition and for their own choice that they're going to have to live with the consequences of for the rest of their life. And then I can, like you said, I can educate and I can draw near and I can be a place of safety but it is not my job to overrun their autonomy. And of course there's circumstances where you're going to kind of step in and prevent, I don't know, a teenager from moving out. And when they're 14 and moving in with some 30 year old dude or some, some like weird situation where you're like, no, I'm going to step in. And I'm like, so there's these weird areas of gray where that, that isn't just like an overarching rule. I think about safety. This is where I feel like as a parent, it's where you have a responsibility for to keep your kids for safety. Right? That's, that's not deciding. Like that's the distinction that I make. Because is this is yeah. this an issue of safety, or is this is what I believe is best for them? Because it's what I believe, hmm. and it may may look poorly upon me. You know, and I have people do oftentimes when I work with parents is I have them do what I call the expectations exercise. Why did you do this? Why did you have a kid? What was your expectations? What is the family's expectations? You know, what's the transgenerational expectations? You know, what, what are you hoping for here? People don't have kids for no reason. You know, I personally, with a trauma history, 
I was all about the corrective experience. I wanted to have kids so that I can give them a non-traumatic experience. So if I just love them, it would be amazing and they would flourish. You know what I mean? And I had to undo my expectations of what I wanted for them mm-hmm. yeah. because that's not what having children is about yeah. is so they can help correct our histories or help us play out what we think it should be like uh, that's yeah. missing the boat so i'm always having people unpack their expectations mm-hmm. this is what i mean my kids taught me so much i just so proud of them in their difference mm-hmm. i'm like the world needs to adjust to who my kids are mm-hmm. i don't want them to adjust to the world that's the wrong message here. It's like, you know, with especially my youngest on the spectrum, there's all this like, get him to behave normally so he fits in. Like, no, thank you. Like the world needs to fit into his way of thinking because it's really unique and it's really kind of cool. And it's very different than most everybody else's. And that, I didn't, I didn't start my parenting journey that way. I learned that along the way. You know, is that's what real, like talk about love. Mm-hmm. is can you really see someone for who they are mm-hmm. fully and completely mm-hmm. what a what a powerful gift wow. yeah. mm. that's and that's, that's uh that transcends something just like empathy of resonating with their own thing that's yeah. it's a deeper level of presence and maybe that's what it. we've been talking about this whole time that's right it's like if i can that's only right. accept a kid or a spouse or you know, a student to patient for the ways that they're meeting my own expectations. That's not love right. at all, is it? No, not at all. But no. when you, you desire to see someone flourish, you know, there's going to be pain when there's contrast between your two different versions yes. of that. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly and, true. but the way that you then assert, I don't know, there's this idea in motivational interviewing that actually it's, mm-hmm. there's an analogy that I like of a teeter totter where, Sometimes we're just so insistent on wanting to show someone the right way of doing something, whether it's something, you know, mundane or something really, really critical in our philosophy or religion. It's, um, we'll sit down on one side of the teeter-totter and let's say they're really ambivalent. They're really undecided. They're not sure what they're going to do to maintain that balance is sit on the other end of the teeter-totter and just to create that balance versus if we can come to them with a version of acceptance and a version of almost some allowing them to think through this by themselves and not necessarily withholding what we believe about something, but almost having an open handedness. Like, yeah, you're really considering going to college. And on the other hand, you think that being a mechanic, going to trade school would be a great job too. Even though you have a desire that they don't go to college. It's it's great. It's going to be awesome. If you go and you plop down on that teeter totter, taking your position with a lot of stern intensity, they're going to meet that intensity on the other end. And then what happens when you, when you force someone to argue a point, they yeah. become more and more convinced of that point. Yes. That's and, exactly uh, right. and we unintentionally move people from the middle of the teeter-totter to the end of the teeter-totter. We don't want them to be at yeah. because, right. um, and maybe to, to bring it back to our language, because uh, I'm not thinking about them. I'm thinking about me. Right. I'm not, I, I'm focusing on how I can throw my own weight around here. I'm not focusing on where they're putting their weight. And well, it, if they think the way I want them to or the way I think they will, then I don't have to challenge my belief mm. system. Yeah, wow. Yeah. I don't have to 
go to an uncomfortable place. If you just went to college, I wouldn't have to deal with any, all the stuff that I have around it, right? You know what I mean? So it, it, there is a way that it's, it's safer and more protective if it's the way I think it should go because it doesn't challenge us. Like yeah. I do really, I mean that I do believe that kids show up in our lives to help us grow. Yeah, yeah. Not to just do what, we think they should do. You know <laughs> what I mean? You'll, you'll see this when <laughs> yours yeah. becomes a teenager. Like it's almost, it's like, yeah. how did they pick the exact thing that is the most important thing to me in my life? How did that happen? You know what I mean? And it is that <laughs> challenge for growing. Yeah. Right? I had to look at what was really important because for me, education saved my life. It got me out of an abuse, you know, got into Harvard. You like can say that. I was like, Harvard saved my life. Like I was able to leave Chicago and move mm. to a different town. So for mm. me, education was life-saving. Mm. That's not what education is for everybody else. So I had to look at what is education? What's the real value? Is that what's the most important thing? Don't I want my kids to be happy? My son is so passionate about cars. Like, mm. why wouldn't I want to support his passion? You know, so it had me, it had me go to these difficult places within me. Yeah. Because if he just did what I wanted him to do or what I thought he should do, I wouldn't have gone to any place difficult mm. <laughs> or challenging or painful within me. Mm. That's why I think we get what we need, not what we want. So well put. I was thinking also of that same application in marriage and in yes, partnership. Totally. Right. Same thing. Yeah. That's we have all these pictures and ideas of what we want intimacy yeah. to look like. And yeah. And when we do open ourselves up to that, it, it grows us, grows the intimacy, ironically enough. It grows the intimacy. Doesn't it? Yeah. Right. Oh, this has been so good. I'm so thankful yes. for your time and for just exploring and unpacking this topic with me. This is something that I think has a lot of wide application, not just in some sort of almost like a psych nerd kind of way on the neuroscience, <laughs> but on the the individual relationships that are most important to us and how we're yeah. trying to engage in intimacy with those people, how we're trying to alleviate pain in the world. It's, it's these distinctions that carry the wisdom to be able to promote flourishing. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Exactly. Very okay. well said. Yeah. yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. I love being here and I love having this discussion with you. Mm -hmm. So thanks for having me. Yeah, Truly. absolutely. Where can we find your work, Frank? What's you have a book that just came out. Yep, I have a book that just came out called Transcending Trauma. I think we talked about transcendence at some point. Transcending Trauma, uh, that can be on Amazon and Pessy.com, all different kinds of places. And it really is the favorite quote from that book. I have to just say is trauma blocks love and love heals trauma. Mm. Talking about that cycle, that's oh, what I believe in. That's, that's what is my mission. And this book talks about that from the IFS perspective and the relational trauma perspective, um, transcending trauma. And then uh, my website is frankandersonmd.com. Working on getting a new one. We've got a whole bunch of new stuff coming out in the new website, which is great. But that's where you can kind of see me and um, all that I do and where I teach and kind of how to follow me great. also. So yeah. everyone go check that out. This guy is a wealth of wisdom as you already heard. Thank you so much. Till next time.